Hello, world singers. My name is Brooke. And I'm Tyler. And this is Cosmere Cosmere Conversations. Welcome back, everyone. So good to be on the mic with you listening here. We have a little divergence from the norm, almost a non-Cosmere conversation. (laughs) It's like as close as it can get without getting a special title. Yeah. We are here today to talk about a tiny, tiny, tiny little snippet of a potential first of the sun story that was actually mentioned in the state of the Sanderson, but I glossed over it as I read because I assumed it was the same thing as the Sixth of the Dusk sequel that we've already not. talked about. Yes, but Kingmaker is an entirely separate thing and may or may not be a real thing, which usually we do not talk about on this podcast. We are a canon only type of pod. However, I love Six of the Dusk. So we're going to dive in anyway. Now, Brandon shared this with a audience that was present at a book signing and launch event for Cytonic. So this was just happening at the end of 2021. As we said, we saw it in the state of the Sanderson, overlooked it a little bit because we were like, oh, we were so on top of the Six of the Dusk sequel that Brandon read earlier in 2021 that this kingmaker snuck right under the radar and i will preface our entire episode by saying we're not going to read the entire thing as we did previously it's a little bit too long takes about 20 25 minutes for brandon to read through and it is available on youtube kingmaker and brandon sanderson brings it right up so if you want to listen to the story go there it has not been transcribed anywhere that we could find and so therefore we leave it to brandon to bring you the story in his own glorious voice and we will just provide commentary on the story because that's what we do here yeah just a quick recap in case you have seen on the internet kingmaker flying around references words and you're like what is this here you go First off, we should say that this story is not about dusk and does not include anything seemingly connected to the stories that we got, be they the brief snippet of the sequel or the original work itself. This is something completely different. It would be a young adult novel if it ever becomes a thing. Brandon only has a very rough first draft here of a couple of chapters. He didn't get super far on it, but it's something he might come back to in the future. Obviously, we all know he has a lot of projects to get to, so I think this is way, way on the back burner. I do think his process of writing the background of this story is interesting enough and it is where I would like to focus a little bit throughout the episode. But beginning with the background of this story, Brandon prefaces his reading of the story by saying that his family went on a trip to Fiji. And one of the things that he likes to do is take places that he has been, places that he has traveled and experiences that he's had and turn that into 
a story world or to incorporate things that he learned from the real world into a story. And that's basically what is going to be the inspiration for this work on First of the Sun. While they were in Fiji, they went to a local village that had a traditional uh, social structure with a chief. And they learned that the chief, in this case, does not choose their own successor. There's a separate person from a completely different family line who whose job it is to choose the next leader of the tribe. And that person is called the kingmaker. And Brandon thought this idea was really fascinating. And so that's kind of where this whole story came out of. Certainly with our background and ethno-European-centric world that we live in here in the United States, most familiar when it comes to kings and queens of it being a real important thing that they can pass on to their direct descendants. Yeah, family line. But on this island of Fiji, or in this specific tribal situation on Fiji, they have this secondary role from a different family entirely, and that family is also important and significant in their society as the king. Yeah, they family. have their own power. It's a way for them to diversify power and have a little bit of a check and balance, even while having a monarchy, essentially. Mm-hmm. Definitely here in the United States, we love our checks and balances. Yes. It's like the primary thing. Got to diversify you. power. And it's interesting to see how other societies and other cultures incorporated checks and balances without necessarily creating a bicameral legislature or other aspects of a modern world government. And even in these first uh, two tiny bits, a prologue and a chapter that we get, pretty much everything that we've discussed here is addressed, which I think is pretty interesting. There's a little bit of talk about family line about and about how the chiefs in this fictional First of the Sun world would like their chiefdom to pass down to their descendants. And sometimes that works if the kingmaker likes it and sometimes not. And they also talk about how beneficial it is to have a check on the chief's power and the kingmaker in some ways functions as a police officer specifically for the chief to make sure that the chief is also following the rules of the society. Now, the real struggle or the mystery that is begun during the prologue is that we are introduced to the chief who is preparing for his own death. We find out that he has a malignant tumor. And right from the beginning, the words that Brandon is using are keying us in to huge changes that have happened yes. on First of the Sun. It seems to be quite far removed in time from even the sequel from Sixth of the Dusk. There seems to have been a lot of time that has passed. And their technology has grown seemingly exponential, very similar to what happened on Scadrial after the events of Mistborn Air 1, launching them into Mistborn Air 2. Just very quickly, things that are mentioned in the prologue kind of displaying the passage of time and the technological growth. They talk about having trains and ships that are moving both people and goods around the different islands throughout their society. They use specific 
linguistic phrases in regards to their description of what is happening medically to the chief. Right. And just so, the fact that they know like what cancer is, what a malignant tumor is. Yes. And they have the very long, like in our language, you know, Latin based, you know, where the names are all 97 different <laughs> Syllables. Exactly. And that's seemingly what is going on here. He you know, has gastrointestinal, malignant tumor, blah, 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 blah. And that fact that they have not only grown from a technological perspective, but also from a scientific perspective and an understanding of the world definitely is pointing to some type of great leap forward in the first of the sun world that we imagine, or at least I think, is predicated on the arrival of the ones above the Skadrians and the Rasharians. Yeah, it's interesting because as we read in that last snippet of the sequel for Six of the Dusk, they are facing this question of whether or not they capitulate to the ones above, so to speak, whether whether or not they give them what they want. And it seems at least from this rough draft set in the future from then that they have. And that is indicated in a few different ways. One, the technology that you're talking about. But then two, there are some worrying mentions of lack of AVR on the islands. And remember, that was the one thing that the Skadrians were very interested in. We want your AVR. And then the Rosharian shows up with you know brilliant shard plate, but maybe Spread plate? Space plate. Yeah. <laughs> Who just says, like, we're going to take it and we're going to give you a better deal than the Skadrians. To me, it is reflecting what Dusk said in that scene, which is that you've already been conquered. The fight is yeah, over. Yeah, it's over. Yes. Everything that was going to happen has happened. And you all, the advisors, and are playing catch up. And that's what I think has happened is that the world was taken over by either the Skadrians or the Rasharians. And while there has been a great leap forward in terms of technology, they probably lost the AVR because they're described as very rare at this point. Yeah, or at least there is clearly some sadness associated with the AVR, a feeling of loss. They do mention many times in these short passages that a lot of the technological advances have been accomplished on their own, obviously piggybacking off of what they have learned in the past from the ones above. But there are discoveries and inventions that are coming from the people. They weren't given these items directly from the ones above. So that indicates to me that maybe they are no longer in contact Mm -hmm. with the ones above. Could have moved on to a different location if their only goal was to kind of harvest or yeah they're just like visiting less often because they have the infrastructure for Mm -hmm. the export set up. That would make a lot of sense if, you know, we followed the uh, Thytokar route of being the trade master. And once you got the trade set up, like, you don't need to yeah. go there anymore and, like, keep threatening That's people. That's the whole point. Automate it. Coming back to the chief, he is dealing with his own death, preparing for his own death, saying, you know, he asked all the questions, received all the answers. He's comfortable with what is going to happen. He will die. The kingmaker will select a new individual. But then... He hears 
a person approaching or coming into his home. And the chief is blind. So he is basing everything on auditory input. And he calls out for his sons, you know, his first son, his his nurse. Yeah. Yeah. And he's saying, you know, who's there? And the person who comes into his room is a murderer and is going to strangle the chief, ending the prologue. And then we jump forward into the first chapter and we are introduced from that omniscient perspective to a new character, a young woman who is the kingmaker. Yeah, and that's a convention that Brandon is playing with in this draft, which is something that I don't know that we've seen him do in any other books. The the third person omniscient voice where the narrator of the story is maybe not the protagonist and is speaking directly to the reader, breaking the fourth wall, so to speak. And it definitely is something that Brandon calls out and says specifically, like, I don't know if this works perfectly, but it created some fun moments and like interesting uses of language. And I think that's a fair criticism. It's a harder way of writing, I believe, to be dealing with this kind of omniscient voice. I think it can be done really well and can offer you some unique opportunities in storytelling. This is a first draft, we have to remember. And so for me, at least in this first draft, the omniscient point of view kind of like came and went, where sometimes it almost seemed like the protagonist was speaking. Mm. And then there would be these like weird points where you would be reminded that it's some omniscient person that is, you know, to this point, faceless. And so that was a little bit like whiplashy for me. And so we have this young woman who is the kingmaker. She is traveling by boat from one island to another and is giving us a lot of these details about the advancement in the world, how they have progressed, and the different types of technology that we see from that Six of the Dust sequel. Yeah, it's the first chapter of what would be a book. So it's obviously a lot of just like scene setting, painting the picture of the world, because a lot of it is told kind of from just inside her head from her own perspective. But again, it's like from an omniscient perspective ish. (laughs) But this world that she's describing, as we said, she describes that AVR seem to be more rare. The more dangerous sea creatures are said to have been hunted to extinction in populated areas. What I found interesting is the way that these tribal societies that would have existed on the islands and basically, you know, been a a tiny kingdom for the chiefdom for the chiefs to rule over have become incorporated into the broader, more democratic system. Governmental systems have like totally changed. And so you still have the remnants of the traditional chief structure, but now there are elected representatives that are going to, you know, what we would call like the National Assembly or the the big organization. They serve alongside the chiefs. The chiefs are still there, but I would imagine it's a diminishing role over time for the chiefs. Yeah, more of she a ceremonial does, role. Yeah, she says something about the chiefs being like responsible for tradition and like upholding traditions. So it seems like they're more responsible for 
that type of thing, you know, keeping maybe holidays and celebrations alive, whereas the elected representatives might be actually governing a lot more of the day-to-day type things. Yeah, and this definitely seems like a furthering of that check and balance that we were talking about earlier. There certainly are countries in our world, uh, you know, France has a split role for their leaders. They have a president and a prime minister. England, obviously, has the monarchy still in place that is almost entirely ceremonial and like a tourist trap. JK, all you UK people, they're great. (laughs) But you also have, you know, in Japan, a, a similar thing. There is a royal family that does still exist, but they have basically been completely surplanted by a modern governmental structure that is based more on what we would call like a a democratic process. Yeah, I don't know if we should call it modern, but it's more of a democratic structure. In addition, uh, like we said before, we hear about Native people inventing and creating their own technologies. Uh, And then we also hear this interesting commentary on the way that the kingmaker's role has changed as well. There used to be a kingmaker on every island, you know, as part of every tribe. But now there is not. There are a few kingmakers that travel between islands like this one that we are hearing the perspective of is currently. And the kingmakers don't necessarily have that close of an eye on the chiefs. It seems like the governing body has kind of taken over that role of check and balance in that way. The kingmakers uh, sometimes don't even like attend the coronations of the new chiefs. They just send a telegram and say like, yeah, cool, your son can take over. It's fine. Yeah, definitely seems like, you know, in the Middle Ages when the Pope crowning the king was a really big, important deal and like people would travel from hundreds of miles away so that they could watch the crown be picked up by the Pope and then placed on the head. And then eventually Napoleon was like, I got this, bro. I don't need you no more. Puts the <laughs> crown on his own head and basically like ends and that tradition. like, we good. Yeah, exactly. And then declares himself emperor and takes over most of Europe. That's how that goes. And I am curious to see, well, we don't know if we will ever see more of this. Yeah. But I would be curious to see what is the role of this kingmaker specifically. The introduction of her age as like a a questionable aspect. Oh, yeah. So she is very young. Kingmakers are generally not. Um, And then the role of the kingmaker changing so much over time, it seems almost like she is being set up more as an investigator of this death. That's what I was thinking, that like it has to be like a mystery story, right, where she arrives and then is trying to solve the murder. Mm. That's kind of the feel that I got, that she would, you know, be traveling to this island, preparing for the death of the chief. And then when she arrives, they're like, oh, he's already dead because of this murder. And that could definitely, you know, set you off into a cool story, a murder mystery type of story. And she is expressing the doubts that she has, you know, arriving on this island. Is she going to be revered in the same way? as kingmakers would be in the past, and what her kind of role in society is. Then Brandon ends the reading and, you know, finishes the the first chapter, first chunk of the first chapter. And 
we're left with his explanation, which, as you mentioned earlier, is kind of like, this is a first draft. It is very much a work that may never see the light of day, but I was very intrigued by this concept of a kingmaker and wanted to incorporate it into a story and a story world that I had already built. Yeah, he's very upfront with the issues that this first draft has. And I just thought it was really interesting that he is so forthcoming with works that are so raw and, you know, like literally a first draft, hasn't really worked on it at all, has a lot of issues. Um, and yet he is so generous with his work and so free of ego to be able to share these things with us. That's kind of what I would like to focus on a little bit is that process that Brandon is going through. So often we are, you know, just heaping praise on this individual. Oh, he's a super genius. He writes so much. He's a writing <laughs> savant. And what we see here is that not only is he generous with his process, but there is a series of different events. Yeah, it doesn't start out just genius from the get-go. <laughs> exactly. And there are editors and writing as work kids <laughs> that's our message today <laughs> but i think it's important to have that perspective on the creation of the cosmere in general is that a lot of this is a lot of work by a lot of different people yeah. it's not just brandon sitting in a room writing up masterpieces and then throwing them out to us you know like dogs getting scraps from the table. Let them eat cake. No, it's like a, a series of drafts and revisions and drafts and guest readers and people giving input that Brandon cares about and incorporates. And that is really what I took away from this is the Kingmaker story could never see the light of day. It could be incorporated in a different way. Yeah, or it might come to being and look completely differently from this excerpt that we've just gotten. I find that type of incorporation of you know past work or previous work to be really interesting. Me too. I think it's so interesting every time that Brandon says that pieces of works that are canon and have been published have come from other things, even like uh, Aether of Night, which we're going to be talking about soon. Um, he says there are some different pieces in terms of like characters and the magic system that he's going to pull out of this world and like incorporate into other stories, other worlds. Which is so weird to me because, you know, we read these books and it feels like, oh, of course, obviously it had to be like this. You know, there's no other planet that you could put Rayadin on. Rayadin belongs on Cell in Elantris. And so it's just wild to me to imagine the way that his brain must work to be able to, like, just pick out these pieces and then create something completely new with them. And like, it works. And it's not the first time that he has done this, as you were just saying with Raiden, but also probably the prime example is Way of Kings Prime. Yeah, exactly. Which has a almost unique magic system. It has a structure with the 10 surges that is familiar to the Radiance. The character of Dalinar exists in Way of King Prime, but 
it is a different story and it is now at this point a published work in that you can go find way of kings you can buy it or you can have it as part of a collector's set but of course that has then turned into the full stormlight archive where the character of dalinar is not a one-to-one comparison of what happened previously and so just the way that story worlds are built the way that characters change over time that worlds change and certainly the magic systems change over time is all really interesting and that's why i think something like kingmaker is worth talking about is because we don't quite know how it's going to be incorporated in the future we could be seeing a kingmaker like check and balance that happens on another on a different world yeah totally he might take that convention and just plant it in a different place because i could definitely like there are places that i'm looking around and i'm like where where could this fit in even something like the pure lake which i know doesn't have this type of structure but it is like a segmented out population Mm -hmm. a little bit more backwards than the quote-unquote modern parts of rishar and you could imagine a weird little system working or maybe it's part of the horn eater society like that could definitely be an aspect that i could see worked in there and you could just keep going down the list of where this type of stuff could fit into the cosmere that is all that we have on the kingmaker but we don't want to end it there we would just want to do a hard turn and go over (laughs) into some fan feedback hearing from the fans both our fans and Brandon's fans. So we'll do some word of Mostly Brandon's, Brandon's fans. Of course. Just people who listen to us. <laughs> Why don't you start us off with a fan theory that was in response to our episode on the book back blurbs and the sleepless. Yes. Adam sent us a link to his very well organized and presented theory about the sleepless. Adam, I really appreciated uh, how clear your theory <laughs> was illustrated. And it is quite long, but in a nutshell, Adam says, in plain English, quote, I believe the sleepless over thousands of years will spread across all the shard worlds, adapting to local geography, cultures, and magic systems. Independent swarms will be connected, capital C, connected, with the local investiture and the shardic intent, and when the time is right, they will take up the power of each shard. Once possessing all the shards, the sleepless, communicating via their mental link, will re-identify as a single entity, pulling together all of the aspects and powers of Adenalsium. This, in my opinion, is the most elegant way to overcome the barriers of a human or a dragon reforming Adenalsium, namely geography and identity end quote great theory i love it yeah i mean the question of what are the sleepless what are they doing what is their role is definitely a big mystery and i love adam's way of putting it together i think that this also kind of goes along with some of the other characters that we are seeing obviously hoyd is seemingly pulling lots of different bits of collecting yeah yeah, investiture but then seemingly we also have the scadrians in that six of the dust sequel Mm, who are very clearly saying like we're going to take your avr we want that resource have they done that on other planets are they going to other it certainly after? seems like yeah, it. So like, are they also doing a harvesting of the different 
shard powers across the Cosmere. It seems like maybe multiple different groups, entities, or individuals are all doing the same thing, which maybe is about reforming ad nauseum. I feel like in that case, it would be more like accidental because I feel like these are human beings we're talking about. Like they are just trying to get more power for themselves. I don't know if they have a lofty spiritual goal. Maybe I would agree with that in just the the very general way. And that's probably what's motivating the individual Skadrians or Risharians that we saw in that sequel. But if they are guided by someone like Thydekar or like Marais, who may have a far longer plan and longer lifespan to create those long plans, then they could be taking advantage of the natural urge to just have power. Maybe. And just direct them in the right way. But that theory does play into my other question that I have here, okay. which is about everybody's favorite sentient sword, Nightblood, because while Nightblood is mainly seen as a destroyer of things, what if he is also a collector of things, of investiture specifically? Okay. The question very generally is, has been asked several times, both to Brandon and generally just on the internet, Mm -hmm. which is, can Nightblood kill Hoyd? Mm. Okay. Now, Brandon has answered this, and I believe we may have mentioned this in a Word of Brandon episode. Could you help me play back and forth? I'll be the questioner who says, quote, what would happen if Hoyd held Nightblood? Uh, Hoyd would not do that. Hoyd would stay very far away. Not even to hold it? He would stay really far away. There are very few things in the Cosmere that Hoyd is afraid of, and Nightblood is one of them. I thought he would be afraid of the pointy end. So let's just say if very, very, very few things in the Cosmere had a chance of destroying you, you wouldn't even pick one up. You'd try to be in a different room entirely, end quote. So we have Nightblood destroying again. Yes, and Hoy definitely being afraid of Nightblood. After what we saw in Rhythm of War with Odium, Uh I certainly believe that Nightblood has the capability, if he is completely empty, fully hungry, Uh and wants to eat he can absolutely kill a vessel and hoid you know even if he was a don shard was a vessel whatever he's going to be on the same tier of a Mm. vessel or lower he's not going to be higher than a vessel. yeah yeah that's what i'm saying i don't know if he's as high as a vessel exactly he might have a little bit of extra investiture which may allow him to resist being killed by night blood as quickly yeah notice as quickly because i think the way that it works is that nightblood sucks investiture Mm -hmm. and so for example if you're on nalthus and you only have the one breath that you were born with Mm -hmm. then the only thing past that is your soul so nightblood grabs the breath and then the only thing left for it to grab is your soul and then you're dead so if you have some additional cushion of additional investiture it probably takes longer for you to be killed, um, which is what we see with the vessel, right? Nightblood just like sucks and sucks and sucks all of the investiture until it hits the soul of the vessel. The vessel. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it is also full and seemingly unable to continue drawing out the investiture from the shard itself. It basically hits a limit. It's I'm trying to limit. remember, is that what happens or... Is Teravangian immediately sucked into the vacuum 
and then like there's no more problem no i believe that it hits an upper limit after it kills the vessel it's described as like sluggishness like nightblood becomes sluggish and nightblood definitely does get sleepy and lethargic sounding after he eats but that happens even if he doesn't eat something as big as a vessel so the question being can nightblood kill hoyd i think the answer is probably yes and that's why brandon's saying hoyd is not going to even be in the same room mm-hmm. as nightblood if he can avoid it my theory okay. relies on the aspect of if nightblood is pulling in all of this investiture where is that going is it being yeah. stored in like just imagine with me the hilt of nightblood <laughs> I think it's more like magical storage, you know, the cloud storage. I don't think it's being stored. I think that Nightblood is functioning like a human or like Lyft, where it is it has an input and the input is used to like sustain its consciousness, I guess. Mm, okay. Maybe. And so the energy that it gets from the consumed investiture is used in like another process just the way that we use food to like fuel our processes and then eventually we need more input understood if that is not the case because remember there was an input that gave nightblood i mean we do store fat so like maybe yeah. it has maybe nightblood has some fat yeah just some, some like, belly fat some energy stores maybe that's the hilt but it only has like a hilt sized store like mm-hmm. it's not just storing every single piece of investiture that it absorbs that would be my theory is that the consciousness for nightblood came from the breasts in its original creation and that's what Mm -hmm. the five scholars did Mm -hmm. the investiture that it then quote-unquote destroys it's not destroying the investiture because you can't destroy magical energy from no it's not it's just absorbing it yeah absorbing it and then i guess either a venting that back into the spiritual realm yeah or b is collecting all of that investiture into some type of cloud storage system (laughs) where all the investitures are one and then this would be like adam's theory Uh, with the sleepless where all the things you think nightblood is going to be at an that is my crazy theory of the day everyone Well, people are really into your crazy theories. I'm starting to feel a little unwelcome on the pod. (laughs) Many people wrote in, commented to say that they liked your theory about one of those other uh, bookback blurbs being about Ba'ido Mishram. Yes, we had some debate all across our different My brother texted me and was like, Brooke, you're wrong. Oh, Tyler is right about this. Don't be crazy. And I was like, okay. Because we had other people who were saying we were both wrong. And that's how I feel <laughs> more true. often. What I feel happens most often is that someone who's much smarter than us is just like, you both clearly made a mistake. And one of our fans on Twitter, Q10 Fanatic, said that, quote, the blurb about Shalon wasn't talking about Testament, which is what you believed, or Ba'ido Mishram, which is what I, it was about reviving Maya. Maya knows the forgotten knowledge mm-hmm. that will damn all the people of Rashar. It's the dark secret of the recreants and why they chose to abandon their oaths and all of Rashar, end quote. I think that's a really good call. I think that's the explanation that makes the most sense. I think in any case i have a problem with that blurb and like it's just kind of lazy writing i just have a problem that there 
included in this section that is supposed to be about Shalon, it's like referencing things that are not really about Shalon. And so I think I just have a problem with the writing of that blurb more than anything. Like, sure, it can be about Maya. I just don't want it to be in that place. Understood that you want it to stay really focused on Shalon and maybe Yeah, like don't pretend too... like it's about Shalon if it's about Adolin and Maya. Definitely could be getting a little bit too esoteric. Courtney also wrote to us on Facebook to say she definitely thinks that it's Ba'edo Mishram. She also said she thought that it was probably referencing Maya, but then she says, quote, maybe it's not a debate over which one fits. Maybe the similarity of Testament and Maya are an indication of what's to come with Ba'edo Mishram. Essentially, Mm. it traps Bren, that Shalon story, that's in Shalon's storyline, and draws out of captivity in some way that that storyline is not what you think it is. Okay, I like this theory because we are both all right and all wrong. And that's my favorite way to look at things. She also says that she thinks Ba'edo Mishram is like not going to be an evil power, but might end up being more sympathetic. And I think we're kind of both in that boat as well. We feel like Ba'edo Mishram is going to be, it's going to be revealed that she is more sympathetic and more beneficial than scary as an unmade hard agree there another fan from reddit user club 77 noted that after watching the latest or one of the latest marvel movies the eternals they noticed a lot of similarities between nightblood and a marvel character slash magical item the ebony blade oh yes i remember you telling me what that blade is supposed to be in the comics. And I was like, so it's Nightblood. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) It is. uh, So their question was basically, is this a chicken and an egg situation where Nightblood clearly is something like the Ebony Blade? It was originally from Marvel Comics in the 60s and 70s. So it's one of the older items uh, and has a long history that we're not going to go into here. But the basic concept is a magical dark blade that also has some like cursed elements going on. And Brandon has specifically not answered that question directly, but in a tangential question about Nightblood, he said that he was partly inspired by a sword Stormbringer, a sentient vampire sword from the Elric Chronicles by Michael Moorcock, a series that I've never read and don't know anything about. But when you trace back kind of all of these different elements, you know, starting with Brandon Sanderson, going to Michael Moorcock, you can actually start to see how these sentient or semi-sentient blades are all referring and referencing one another. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of go from Nightblood and Brandon Sanderson to Michael Moorcock to the Ebony Blade, and you just get this pattern that is very interesting where authors are inspired by what's going on in the culture in society what other authors are doing and especially from times when they were young and developing so brandon was probably reading moorcock during his developmental era who is maybe reading marvel comics in the (laughs) 60s and 70s when the ebony blade was on the scene and that's always like a fun journey to go down I don't think that any one of those things is like a direct reference to the other, but it is fun to follow that train of inspiration. 
Can I say one more thing about the Eternals oh, in yeah, yeah. relation to the Stormlight Archive? I feel like there's a good start for the Knight's Radiant armor on the Eternals. Oh, okay. You like some of their armor As I was choices? watching, I was like, huh, this could be shard plate. This could be a cool shard plate. Yeah, I feel they- it. They each have their own color and their armor like glows a little bit in that color. And I was just like, okay, there's somewhere to start. We got this. It definitely was visually a spectacular movie. And while we are not going to spoil or ruin any aspects of that, because that would be a different podcast. That would be our spinoff podcast, Cuddling Excuses. Um, it certainly is going to be interesting if there are cosmere movies and tv shows in the future then what become the inspiration for those things they basically have to look at the marvel movies and other similar programs that we've talked about like the wheel of time and xyz as their sources of inspiration and also the things that they need to be better than like nobody comes into it as like well we're gonna be worse than everything that came before (laughs) they're always trying to one-up each other and that can lead to some problems but also can lead to a continual advancement of more and more cool visual effects in movies and television shows. And then we have definitely a fun one, but maybe a little sad one to end the podcast. Oh, no. Going out on a downer note. uh, Well, I mean, I don't (laughs) want it to go on a downer note. What I want to leave us with is a super fun Reddit thread that had asked the question, describe your favorite character in the worst way possible okay i like it exactly and so we're going to give a couple of shout outs here remember if you want to play along with these types of things you can always follow us on twitter reddit facebook all the different social medias even on patreon where you can get special extra bonus episodes to the reddit thread your favorite character in the worst way possible i began telling brooke about this thread uh with this line here from user venley timber quote a blonde a brunette and a redhead walks into a bar and orders a bottle of horn eater white (laughs) it's so good genius you're a genius out there venley timber genius for other shallan specific ones we have murderous orphan mocks a member of the military and steals his boots good yeah another one we have Tinkerbell, but she can actually kill you if Peter Pan orders her to do it. Obviously, Syl. Syl as Tinkerbell is hilarious. Uh, it's perfect. And also, Kaladin as Peter Pan is not bad either. Like, that that's fine. <laughs> Just, uh, I think... Yeah, especially if you're talking about the actual book Peter yes, Pan. Yes, exactly. In which Peter is not... Not nice great. at all yeah, he's, he's bad way worse than kaladin just for the record like way oh way, way worse. worse way worse uh, but, but kaladin's not like the jolly guy in the disney movie for example one user said quote a depressed peter pan fights crippling depression and caste systems rather than magical pirates that's good that's that's, that's not bad good. that's not bad at all <laughs> could you read this one from user no necessity Blonde himbo with one brain cell but killer fashion sense still isn't potty trained. I take issue with that. Let us never forget that Adolin has on multiple occasions gone to the bathroom in his shard plate. As has every other night on Rishar. <laughs> and also rude. The himbo? Yeah, Adolin's way smarter than that. Obviously, it's a bad way of describing the well, characters. That saying. is the point. You can't get defensive. Rude. <laughs> I will defend Adolin to the death. 
Here we go. Here's another one for Adolin. Quote, absolutely the only mentally stable character. <laughs> kind of just a dude in a world full of superheroes. That's accurate. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> That's fine. Okay, I think this one is my favorite. Inanimate object does not spontaneously burst into flames in exchange for a small amount of magical light. <laughs> the Obviously, object of court? stick. <laughs> so How dare funny. they do not spontaneously burst into flame. Okay, and then let's go with the one that could be kind of a downer, but also was undoubtedly the winner of the thread, according okay. to users, which is from user Trunks Chan 31 quote, disgruntled father forgets to let his wife know they're having a barbecue. <laughs> Ouch. Ooh, burn. Oh, my God. It Insensitive. It does not stop. Too soon? It's only been 15 plus years or something. People really hate on Evie. That is our quick foray into what's going on in the Cosmere internet today. <laughs> Thanks so much for staying with us. If you have any quotes, comments, questions, or concerns, you know how to get a hold of us. Brooke, can you take us away? Until next time, life before death. Strength before weakness. Journey before destination. <laughs> <laughs>